Church, I'd love to begin by praying for us. I'm curious to know who is physically feeling not 100% because either of a chronic issue or a bit of cold. Anyone not feeling 100%? A couple of people across the room. I guess those who are not feeling 100% are watching from the stream. We're praying for you. Uh, I've been down most week, so let's ask for the Lord's blessing and hand upon us. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your word read to us just then, uh, for the beautiful poetic justice and irony and love that is contained there. And so, Lord and God, we pray that today you will open up our hearts to receive, um, soften us to hear your voice, that we may be deeply moved and transformed. Lord, we pray for those who are uh, physically unwell. We ask you, Lord, for your healing hand upon every single one of us. Um, strengthen us as we seek to love and serve you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, welcome to our new sermon series on the book of Hosea. Thank you for putting the microphone up. That's very helpful. That way I don't have to scream. And I'm breathing through one nostril right now. And um, the only part of me that's been running this week is my nose. So um, that's pretty good. Uh, we're going to spend the next few months on this minor prophet Hosea. And we'll discover that there is nothing minor about this book at all. Indeed, it is significant in its theology. And this book is powerful in shaping our knowledge and love of God. It's going to really help us to know who God is and the heart of God, and it will transform the way we live. Now, we picked Hosea as one of our main books to preach this year for at least three reasons, right? Uh, firstly, I think that Christians far too often favor the New Testament over the Old. That's probably a given, isn't it? Uh, in many ways, that makes sense because Jesus Christ is seen clearly in the New Testament, but at the same time, it's also unfortunate because the Old Testament sets the scene and the context. The Old Testament highlights the vivid imagery and the true condition of our hearts. It foreshadows our Savior. So it makes sense. We're going to spend the next two months in Hosea, and then um, we'll be spending December in the book of Malachi. So lots of Old Testament for us this year. A second of all, most churches that do look at the Old Testament usually spend time in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's usually, that's kind of what we've done as a church, right? And that's really good. There is so much there. Uh, but rarely do people dive into the prophets and rarely do people swim in the minor prophets of which Hosea is one of them. Uh, but I think God uses minor prophets to preach a major message, which is why, thirdly, we're going to work our way through Hosea because God continues to speak to his people, to us, through this book. This book speaks of God's unfailing love, his relentless grace, his all-consuming passion for his glory and the good of his people. Hosea communicates all of this through various themes. It's actually pretty exciting. There's, there's marriage, there's unfaithfulness, there's political scramble, there's social issues. You know, forget House of Cards. Like, this is, this is what you want to be paying attention to. So unsubscribe to Netflix and Prime Video for the next few months because this book is going to give you all the drama you need, right? I've titled this sermon, Not a Girl You Bring Home to Your Parents. Not a girl you bring home to your parents. Maybe you've heard that saying before. Uh, you know you're dating someone and she's wonderful, smart, intelligent, pretty, makes you a better person. But then you wonder, you ask yourself, right? Is she someone I can bring home to meet my parents? Will they approve of her? Will my parents like her? Now you see, implicit behind that question is that there is something wrong about this girl that will cause your parents to dislike her. So even though you like her, you're not sure if she is someone your parents would approve of. 
Now, I want to say that there are so many questionable and problematic things about this particular saying, right? I'm not endorsing it. In fact, gentlemen, uh, before you ask whether this is a girl you bring home to your parents, you need to ask yourself if you are the kind of guy that she would bring back to meet her parents, right? Uh, But we mostly get it. Uh, There are just some guys and girls that you just wouldn't bring home because there's just, you're not sure about something, right? And now you see what parents may or may not accept in future uh, son or daughter-in-laws vary from culture to culture. But as you look at Hosea, we realize that this major character is going to cause some very severe and serious anxieties. Come to chapter 1 verse 1 with me here. And we're introduced to Hosea, after whom the book is named. He was a prophet during the reign of several kings. Um, And while these names may not mean much to us, the list there in verse 1 actually summarizes a period of economic prosperity that led to a decline to poverty. It summarizes a period of political stability to a period of political instability. That's how they would tell a story. They just tell you names. And here we see a real decline in Hosea's lifetime. It is into this context of change and fluctuation that Hosea speaks as a prophet. But the character I want to introduce you to you today is actually found in verse 3. Her name is Goma, the daughter of Diblim. And the Lord calls Hosea to marry her. And this here is the character that causes some anxieties. Now, as you come to point one with me, I want us to realize that the entire story of Hosea is effectively centered around this marriage. This marriage between Hosea and Goma. And this marriage here is actually a parable. Now, a parable is just a fancy way of saying that this is a story that teaches a lesson. A story that teaches a lesson. Again, we get this, right? Uh, You know the story, the boy who cried wolf? It's a parable. It's a story which teaches us that it is foolish and dangerous to tell lies. In the same way, uh, Hosea and Gomer's marriage is a parable, and this is a marriage that teaches us kind of three lessons, tells us three lessons. And these three lessons are present all throughout the book of Hosea. It comes up again and again. If you have your subheadings on the point one, you'll also see that there's a little graph there that um, illustrates this particular pattern. The first thing that this parable highlights and teaches is the theme of sin and unfaithfulness. Uh, This is there in verse 2. Let me read it for us. The Lord said to him, that's Hosea, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Now, there's so much to unpack here, but I want us to notice three things, okay? Firstly, Hosea knew that this woman he was to marry would be unfaithful. He knew. God's instructions were clear. He says, he doesn't say, go marry a woman, and then later she becomes promiscuous. No, the passage makes it clear. Go marry a promiscuous woman. And the rest of the story of Hosea will show that this is exactly who she is, not the kind of girl you bring home to meet your parents. And so Hosea would not need to be surprised when she is unfaithful. Hosea knew from the beginning who this woman was. Second of all, Hosea's marriage to Gomer was a metaphor or a symbol of God's relationship with Israel, God's people. Look at how verse 2 ends. Look at your Bible with me. It says, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. 
In other words, as mentioned, the story is about Hosea and Gomer, but more significantly, it is about God's relationship with God's people. And like Gomer, Israel, God's people have been promiscuous, unfaithful in their worship. They have been unfaithful to the Lord their God. You see, and so thirdly, this entire relationship is actually an interpretation of the history of Israel, the history of God's people. Because you see, this has always been a pattern between God and his people. When we think of the exodus all the way to the exile, it has always been this routine, sin, punishment, and restoration. Do you see in your outlines, there is a cyclical nature to that graph. The same thing is about to happen. Goma sins, that sin represents unfaithfulness of God's people. And so there is punishment. Continue in point one with me. That's what verses four to eight is all about. And this is symbolized through Hosea's children. Hosea's first child is called Jezreel. Now, um, you may remember that names in the Bible are very important. Names are not haphazard or accidental. It is highly intentional. Names are meant to communicate something and often a story, a theme, a doctrine. Jezreel is actually a beautiful name. It means God sows. It's, It's meant to be a symbol of hope. And that's appropriate for a firstborn, right? You want to have a bit of hope. And yet Jezreel is also the name of a well-known valley. And in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 15, 29, this valley, Jezreel, was actually a place of war, a place of violence, a place of judgment, a place of punishment. It's a place where people died. And so just in that name, we get a sense There is punishment, but also hope. But of course, the rest of verse 4 to 5 expands on it, right? Uh, The name Jezreel is to highlight the fact that God is going to punish and put an end to the kingdom of Israel. God's people will not survive God's judgment. Uh, The theme of punishment is reinforced in verses 6 to 7 with the second child. This time, a daughter, and her name is Lo-Ruhamah. And this year, there's also a sense of punishment and hope being reinforced together because Lord Ruhama literally means not loved, no mercy. Can we just pause and acknowledge that this is such an unfortunate name? Uh, Like like Joey and Awina named their son Elijah. It means the Lord is my God. Such a powerful name, you know, Elijah. They call him Lychee, which is, you know, falls short of that full name, right? The, The Lord is my God. Or Alfred and Kitty named their son Emmett. It means truth. Ah, oh, beautiful, right? Tim and Hannah named their newborn Sinclair, which means pure, renowned. David and Cheryl named their daughter Lois, which means desirable, most beautiful. There's a meaning there, right? Uh, Sherilyn and I named our daughter Anastasia Zoe, which means resurrection life. So that even though our physical bodies are imperfect and wasting away, we await the resurrection of Christ where all things be made new. You know, you name your children with a desire, with a longing, and a purpose. So imagine naming your daughter not loved. You can start calling the therapist and making an appointment because this is a tragic life right in front of you, right? But, but why? Our God makes it clear in verse 6. Because this child is an illustration that God will not forgive his people. 
that because of their unfaithfulness, God no longer loves them. And yet, you see, the punishment is met with hope. Look at verse 7. Although the child's name signifies God's withdrawal of passion, this, this parable, this prophecy indicates that there will be deliverance. There will be salvation. There will be restoration, but just not yet. Because there's one more child. Come to verse 8. And his name is Lo-Ami, which means not my people. Uh, you see, the successive naming of children in Hosea makes things clear, right? There will be punishment. There will be no love and no mercy. And now the Israelites will no longer be called God's people. They will be cast out. And yet again, when you come to verses 10 to 11, we see a sure sign of restoration. Because although the Israelites are deserving of God's judgment, God himself makes it clear that a time will come when they will be blessed. Verse 10 says that they will be like sand on the seashore. That's a beautiful image which says that they will be fruitful. They will multiply again. What's more, verse 10 continues saying that in the exact place where they were called, not my people, in that place will also be the place where they are restored. There's a beautiful irony here, right? Pay really close attention to the text. But it also gets even better. Look at verse 10. It's the place where they are not only called God's people again, they are called God's children. There is now a deeper level of intimacy, a restoration, a reversal has taken place. I want to reflect on a few things based on our verses so far. Firstly, Hosea 1 is a prelude or the 60-second trailer which introduces the key themes in this book that we're going to spend the next few months on. We're going to wrestle with it. We're going to touch on these themes again and again. So it'll be really good for you uh, to keep these notes in your Bible, to uh, have these categories in your mind when you read it for your quiet time or when you read the passages before coming on Sunday. That's just going to help set the scene for us, right? Second of all, Hosea 1 also rehearses the history of Israel up to this point. And so pay attention, this cycle is not just in Hosea. Again, when you think about it, this pattern of sin and punishment and restoration is all throughout the Bible. I think from the beginning, Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sin, they are punished and cast out, but even in this punishment, there is hope of restoration as God covers their nakedness and shame, as God promises that through Eve's offspring, restoration is about to come. Think of the story of the Exodus where the Israelites sin in the wilderness. The promised land is no longer theirs, but even in that punishment, there is hope and promise that their children will receive God's promises. You see, God's people have behaved in the same way time and time again. Which is why, thirdly, um, this cycle and indeed the story of Hosea is actually a warning to us today. It's a warning to us that unfaithfulness to God is dangerous. It's not a small thing. It warrants God's severe judgment so much so that He would withdraw His love and mercy and blessing towards us. So if this is such a severe problem, it's helpful for us to ask, right, for, for the book of Hosea, how was this unfaithfulness expressed? What did it look like? Come to point two, the problems of Israel. Because the book of Hosea tells us that Israel's unfaithfulness were expressed in three main problems. The first is what you could call syncretistic worship. 
Uh, those of you who did studies of religion in high school, you may remember, right? Syncretistic worship or syncretism means the mixing of different religions together. Uh, for example, one could mix Buddhism with a bit of Taoism, with a bit of Confucianism, and you come up with a new religion. That's what Israel was doing. And more specifically in Hosea chapter 4, we see that God's people were integrating a sort of pagan fertility Baal cult into their worship and calling that the worship of the true God of Israel. They used different sort of animal sacrifices, but also kind of wild pagan practices like temple prostitution and calling that worship unto God. Uh, the equivalent for us would be to worship God here at Grace Point, but instead of a cross, we hung a statue of Buddha behind us. Instead of singing of God's faithfulness, we sang of the goodness of the Hindu god Vishnu. Instead of preaching about Jesus' death and resurrection, we read and preach about an Aboriginal Dreamtime story, and we did all of this while saying we are worshiping the Christian God. Syncretistic worship. And this is why the theme of marital unfaithfulness is so fitting as a parable and as a metaphor. And because you see, our worship of God is meant to be exclusive. And there can only be one. And so to bring together so-called gods and so-called religions will be a violation of that marital and relational purity. We get this, don't we? Uh, there is something about marital unfaithfulness that brings relational betrayal to a whole new level. That violation of trust and integrity is something that you feel deeply, something you never shake off. And so God is furious that His people would bring third parties into this exclusive relationship, especially since He has poured out His love and commitment to them. Another expression of the problem of unfaithfulness is an over-dependence or a trust on earthly kings and rulers. That's the second subheading in the point. And now again, th this theme here gets unpacked in the rest of the book. And more specifically, chapters 5, 8, and 10, there we see the prophet Hosea being particularly critical of the Assyrian king. Uh, but a careful reading of Hosea reveals the problem is not so much that Israel had kings and rulers. That wasn't the main problem. God is not against earthly governments. The problem instead is that Israel longed for these kings to rule over them instead of God. They were saying, these kings, these governments, they are enough for us. We don't really need God. They felt like the kings had the power to replace God. They felt like the kings and the rulers could save them from their problems. And you see, they thought they could provide for their needs. And so the third problem with the unfaithfulness is that they're also dependent on foreign policy to save them. Now, it's surprisingly modern, isn't it? They believe that politics could deliver them from their woes, and um, there's quite a bit of detail in this in the book of Hosea. But what you'll see is that the Israelites are playing off the Assyrian and the Egyptian governments against each other for their own gain. There was an eager hope that either of these governments would redeem them from their decline. Do you, do you see what's going on? The Israelites have been unfaithful to God by worshipping other gods, by depending on earthly kings rather than God, by trusting in foreign policy and advanced politicking instead of God. And it's into this situation that Hosea speaks God's voice of judgment and hope. 
Now, that's a bit of overview of the book of Hosea, and we'll dive deeper again in the next few weeks. But as you come to point three, I want us to notice something very significant. Uh, Because you see, it's entirely possible for us to read this and think, ah, okay. So, Pastor, you're saying Gomer was unfaithful. That's terrible. She's not the girl you bring home to her parents. Okay, mental note, don't marry a promiscuous woman or a man. That might be a principle for us, right? Uh, But you see, if point one is right, then surely the book of Hosea is more than a marriage manual. Because as mentioned before, it's a parable. It teaches us something. And if we're paying very close attention to what's going on, we realize that this is actually speaking of God's faithful love towards us, even to unfaithful and ungrateful people. The point is clear, isn't it? Goma represents Israel, and Hosea represents the God who knows what he's getting into. Just as Hosea knew he was going to marry a promiscuous woman, God knows that his people will be unfaithful. And yet, he still offers grace, mercy, and love. I wonder if we've noticed something as well. Goma doesn't just represent Israel. She represents us. Church, we are the girl or the guy who the other person doesn't want to bring home to meet their parents because we have been unfaithful. We have turned our backs against God who constantly pours out grace upon us, right? I mean, think about it. The issue of syncretism isn't an abstract, foreign, distant concept. It's something that we are guilty of as well, right? I mean, it could be blatant syncretism, okay? It could be someone who says, right, and I've met people like that, they tell me, you know, I'm, I'm a free thinker, I'm, I'm an agnostic. Maybe you've heard that before, right? That's where someone picks and chooses what they want to believe in and who or what they worship. And they may often call it open-mindedness, but often there is a chance it's more indecision than open-mindedness. Or worse, it could be arrogance to think that we could form a God after our own image. And there's a saying, it's very powerful, right? <clears throat> It says, if the God you worship doesn't disagree with you, then you are not worshiping God, you are worshiping yourself. And this is particularly arrogant when we consider that every single religion in the world makes exclusive claims that are completely incompatible with each other. There is no way you could possibly say that all religions are the same. There is no way to syncretize our worship without being unfaithful to all of them. Uh, But you see, there is more than just blatant syncretism, isn't there? Church, listen very closely. Christians can fall into this as well. It's what you could call the God and approach, right? It's God and money, God and relationships, God and career, God and fill in the blank. You see, the trouble with this sort of syncretism is firstly that it is subtle. We don't often realize that it's happening. We can very easily say, yes, I'm a Christian, but when we put our lives under a microscope, it reveals that we are turning not to God for security, but to our investments and our savings. It reveals that we are not turning to God to satisfaction, but to relationships. It reveals that we are not turning to God for significance, but our career and our progression, our promotions. Yes, you know what? Church, we can be syncretistic in our worship too. So that even if there are no statues or false doctrines being preached in our church, our hearts can be gripped by other gods. 
they could be our gods. But you see, syncretism is also dangerous because it takes good things and turns them into God. Good things like money, good things like relationship, good things like careers. These are gifts from God to be enjoyed, used to serve Him, yet we turn them into ultimate things, which ruins the gift and betrays the giver. Don't you see, unfaithfulness is not just a Goma or an Israelite problem, it's a you problem. It's a me problem. It's the same with a dependence upon kings and rulers, right? A reliance on politics and government. I mean, what's interesting about recent events is that many of us have been prompted to think about the relationship between Christians and politics, right? We ask the question, what's the intersection? What's the relationship? Does one enhance or diminish the other? These sorts of reflections are so good. Let's keep having them, right? But what concerns me as a pastor is that we sometimes look at our current earthly situation and believe that only earthly authorities are our hope. I mean, consider this, right? When we think of rising interest rates, climate change, gender confusion, indigenous rights, unemployment, geopolitical tension, who do we turn to to solve these problems? Our government our politicians, our prime ministers, our MPs and our governments. Now, now, so we petition and we say, right, what we need is more regulation. What we need is less government intervention. What we need is more funding. What we need is less welfare. Now, are any of these things true? Probably. Do earthly governments and rulers have a responsibility to do that which is right, to deal with these earthly problems that they are elected to deal with? Absolutely. But church, listen very closely. They are not our saviors. They are not our saviors. They can have a profound influence and make a big difference to be sure. And so we support them. We, we pray for them. We use our legal rights to advance good causes. Some of you in this room may end up being politicians and I praise God for that, right? But listen, church, none of our politicians are our gods. And if we keep placing our hopes on them, they will disappoint us. And they may even take advantage of us because we have placed too much hope, trust, and power in their hands. Don't you see? The problem with Israel is that they wanted kings as if they were God. So that they did not have to depend on God. Could that be us? Sometimes when I see um, Christians or sometimes even churches fighting over things, it almost seems like the answer is the next election. It depends on who comes into power. And I just wonder, like, there's a sense in which so much of this is true, right? But it almost feels like God doesn't even need to be around for there to be hope anymore. And I wonder if that is such a major problem. Church, do we catch ourselves saying things like, things will be better at the next election? Things will be better when so-and-so comes to office. Things will get better when someone else leads the RBA. Do we say the same things about foreign policy? Like if China did this, if Russia did that, if the U.S. did this, if Australia did that, then we'll be okay. (laughs) Do you see, unfaithfulness is a lot less abstract than we think it is. It is our problem as well. Church, the book of Hosea is a mirror to our souls, revealing that we are less faithful than we think we are. 
more prone to worshipping and depending upon false gods than we are prepared to admit. And so this is appropriately a book of judgment, right? Jezreel, valley of judgment, low Ruhama, no love, no mercy, low army, not my people. One of the questions we ought to ask ourselves is this. How do we break this cycle of sin, punishment, and restoration? Pastor, if this is true, that this isn't just a story of Israel and Hosea, but it's our story, then what is the solution? Now, you see, as alluded to before, Hosea is a book about unexpected hope. So that laced within indictments of judgments, there is still hope for restoration. Church, the beauty of the book of Hosea is that it demonstrates God's relentless love towards unfaithful people. Valley of judgment, but it's also the valley where God sows hope. Lord Ruhama, no love, yet soon to be called beloved. Lord Ami, not my people, yet soon to be called my people and my children. This pattern is repeated again and again all throughout Scripture. But I want you to see that it climaxes in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, in Christ, we meet a God who doesn't just let sinners be. He chases them because He loves them. Do you realize that? That God is not waiting for you to come towards Him. He is chasing you. In Christ, we meet a God who doesn't wait for sinners to get good. He pursues them and transforms them. In Christ, we meet a God who doesn't wait for us to be faithful and loyal. He woos us by His grace and mercy. In Christ, we meet a God who loves us so much that though we sin, He pays the price for our punishment so that we can be restored. If you look at your new graphs in your outlines, you'll see it is Christ who breaks this perpetual pattern so so that sin grips us no more, so that new life and restoration is ours. At church, it is Christ who transforms us from spiritual harlots into those who are spiritually holy. Let me wrap up with a few actions to apply. And there are three very simple ones, right? Don't wander, don't wait, don't worry. Firstly, don't wander. Don't move around aimlessly with other gods. That's the point. Don't move around aimlessly with other gods. And I think there are two groups of people um, that this applies to. Uh, Firstly, it, it speaks to Christians who are consciously or subconsciously Drifting in their spiritual devotion. We mentioned this before, right? God and relationships. God and stability. God and career. God and fill in the blank. And you know, we've done this when we seek things other than God for a sense of security, safety, and satisfaction. Church, do not turn to other gods. Even if you don't call them gods, that is syncretism. And syncretism warrants God's judgment, especially if there is an unrepentant heart. Church, the danger with syncretism is also that it's a slippery slope. It happens so subtly, it's almost too late when you realize that it's taken root in your heart. Church, Hosea 1 is actually an opportunity for us to do some heart work. Ask yourself honestly, right? Who or what am I turning to for a sense of fulfillment? Who or what am I turning to for a sense of fulfillment? Because that thing, that person is what you worship. Uh, Dear brother or sister, 
don't wander. That's God's word to you today. The second category of people is this. Uh, You may not be a Christian and you're here just to check things out. And as always, we are so glad that you're here. Are we a church where seekers and skeptics are welcome? There is no judgment for you. Uh, But dear friend, God by his word is actually saying to you today that you don't have to seek any further. The God of unceasing grace and unending love is chasing you all the way to where you are seated right now. You may feel like you don't deserve it, but, but, but don't you see? The good news of the Christian faith is that wandering, exhausted, disappointed, frustrated, disillusioned, and jaded people can find hope and healing in Jesus Christ. It is exactly for these people that Christ was sent. This is a God who loves the unlovable, who makes his enemies his children, who vindicates those who deserve punishment. Friend, don't wander. Because the second implication for us today is this. Don't wait. You see, just so we are absolutely clear once more, we are the Goma in the story. We are the adulterous and promiscuous wife who gives her love and her devotion to anyone who promises cheap thrills. But the beauty of the story is this, isn't it? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Hosea embodies that reality by constantly chasing his wife again and again. Now, over the next few weeks, we're going to see this play out in painful detail and honesty. There will be chapters and weeks where we get so frustrated, we pull our hair out and we think, Goma, don't you get it? You were already loved. You were already treasured. You were already valued. But every time we feel frustrated, we need to remember that this is us. We already loved, already treasured, already valued. So don't wait. Hosea is a call for us to come home to the Lord today, for there is forgiveness. If you are um, a Christian and you feel rebuked by your unfaithfulness, and then the words we often recite after the corporate confession, it's a powerful reminder, isn't it? 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Dear brother or sister, don't wait. Repent and return to Him. If you are not a Christian, then this is not good news that is too good to be true. There is no bait and switch. Here's the reality. Like Hosea, God loved us at our worst. He totally knows what he's getting into. None of what you've said, done, or thought surprises him. And even still today, right now, he is reaching out to you by his spirit, drawing you by his love and saying to you, dear son, dear daughter, don't wait. Trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If that's you today, I'd love to have a conversation with you after this service. We are not the girl that someone will bring home to meet their parents, but God takes us in. He loves us. He adorns us. He beautifies us. He makes us whole again. He wants to do that for you today. It's not too late. Don't wait. And lastly, this is important, right? You see, as I read the book of Hosea, I realize that this is a real challenge for us today to stop flirting with false gods. There are real warnings here, and I think I speak to everyone in this room. God is warning us about the dangers of false worship. But you see here, God doesn't just say, stop worshiping false gods. 
I mean, he does. But our text also goes to the root. Because here's an interesting question, right? What is it about the pagan gods? What is it about the earthly rulers? What is it about the foreign policies that attract the Israelites to worship them? That's a helpful question, isn't it? Or maybe for you, right? Why is it that we worship what we worship? Why is it? Like if it's career, why is it that we bank our hopes on that? Like if it's family or if it's how we are perceived, why is that so important to us? More often than not, we'll find that the answer to our question is this. We don't think that God is enough. We don't think that God is enough. You see, for the Israelites, it could be that their political and economic and military condition was declining, and, and they're thinking, you know what? God's not working fast enough. It doesn't look like He is powerful enough, so we need other solutions. So you know what? Hey, guys, let's hedge our bets. Let's diversify our worship portfolio, and this way we can increase our odds to succeed. God isn't enough. Let's supplement all of this seems harmless, but it is in effect a lack of faith, a deep distrust in the promises of God. And again, church, we do this, don't we? The reason we sometimes place all our hopes on relationships is because we don't believe that God's love is as fulfilling as He says it is. The reason we sometimes place our expectations on career for stability it's because we don't believe that God's promises to meet our every need will come to pass. Yet here in Hosea, we are presented with a rich and full view of God who shows His radical commitment towards us. His love is far, deep, and wide. And because of that, here's the last implication. And I know this is hard. I want to say this as sensitively as I can. But here is an action to apply. Don't worry. It's not a Aussie thing like, yeah, no worries, don't worry about it. No, it's, it's, not, it's not that. The call to not worry is not because there is nothing to worry about. The call to not worry is because the God who loves us knows exactly what He's doing. So that even in political, economic, and social decline, these things are not outside of His control. So that even in deep losses, even in deep frustrations, even in deep confusion, God has not lost His way. You may feel like you have lost your way, but God hasn't. And the God who loves you and cares for you and is sovereign over all is inviting us to say, don't worry. Not because there are no obstacles, but because He is for us and He is before us. You see, God works in subversive ways and He is inviting us to trust in Him even when it's hard. He has demonstrated all this through Christ, right? His death on the cross looked like it wasn't powerful enough. It was exactly through this supposedly shameful death that brought forgiveness to all. His tomb looked like God wasn't working fast enough. Yet it was through this burial and resurrection that brought life to all. You see, Grace Point, this is how we guard our hearts from syncretism. Not to just stop worshipping, but actually to have a posture of to not worry, to entrust our lives to God. We don't need anything else because our God is enough. Even more practically, are you ready? I want to give you this quote to chew over during the course of this week, okay? 
Uh, it was uttered by the American pastor, Charles Stanley, who recently passed away. It is simple yet so profound. And, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, I, I included this because I'm wrestling with this quote right now. Okay. He says this, it's printed in your outlines. He says, obey God and leave all the consequences to him. That's so good, isn't it, right? This here is not naive optimism. It's a firm conviction that God loves us, has a plan for us, has a path paid for us, and has our holiness, our joy, and our fullness in mind. Very practically, I want to speak to those in this room who know what God's Word says. You know God's will and purposes. You know what it means to obey Him. But you are struggling to believe that obedience will lead to the outcome you desire. You know what's right, but you're having a difficult time because you don't want to be taken advantage of. You don't want to lose out. You don't want to draw the short end of the stick. I I, I totally understand. Perhaps this is the sign you're looking for. God loves you, so you can obey Him and leave the consequences to Him. Because whatever those consequences are, they are for your good and for His glory. I don't know who I'm speaking to, but I want you to know that it's going to be okay. Obey God and leave all the consequences to Him. Church, that's Hosea chapter 1. Don't wander, don't wait, don't worry, for we have a God who loves us. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this introductory chapter which introduces us to the main characters and the main themes of this rich book that we're going to dive into over the next few months. Our Lord and God, we pray that uh, your love for us would not remain an abstract concept but an intimate reality that we know and sense and feel day by day that transforms our hearts and our souls and our minds. Our Lord and God, we pray that those who are drifting from you will be drawn by your relentless grace. And those who are struggling to believe in your promises uh, would know your love for them and be confident in obedience for you have the best plan for us. Our Lord and God, we continue to commit ourselves to you as a deep act of faith and trust. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.